It's been some week. Wikipedia, Reddit, and others shuttered their websites for a day to protest anti-piracy bills before Congress. They contend threaten internet privacy and security. And federal authorities closed down the file-sharing site Mega Upload, charging its leaders with pirating recordings, the intellectual property of the music industry. Hello, I'm Eric Chabro of Information Security Media Group, and I'm pleased to welcome back Alan Friedman, a fellow in Governance Studies and Research Director of the Center for Technology Innovation at Brookings, a Washington think tank. Thanks, Alan, for taking time to chat. Great to talk to you, Eric. Are the anti-piracy arrests associated with the file-sharing site MegaUpload.com an example of authorities using existing laws to go after intellectual property pirates without the need uh, of some of the controversial provisions found in PIPA and SOPA? That's before Congress. Given that the U.S. authorities have just used existing law, I think the answer is a resounding yes. The interesting thing is that these uh, online files, these lockers, as they're called, uh, to distinguish them from uh, sites that provide links to content or actually explicitly host content in a searchable form, have been cited as you know reasons why we need these new laws, and apparently they can apply to existing laws. What provisions do you see surviving in SOPA and PIPA as some form, and would that create some good law? Looking at SOPA and PIPA, it's important to sort of understand them in the context uh, as a gradual evolution of increasing enforcement. So we started off uh, with the Digital Millennium Copyright Act, which allowed anyone who says, listen, there's something on this website that we don't like, we think it is violation of our intellectual property rights, please take it down. This is the notice provision of DMCA. And most large websites have learned to deal with this. It provides a reasonably good enforcement. It doesn't provide perfect enforcement, but it actually works with the economics. Uh, a site that uh, really distributes a lot of content that's blatantly violating is more likely to attract attention, and it doesn't require that all of these new websites police everything that's going on. But there are still websites that are devoted primarily to infringing content. In cases where they don't respond to DMCA, and rights holders felt that their uh, ability to gain injunctions were not uh, strong enough. So we had the uh, Pro-IP Act that was passed two years ago, which allowed the United States government to go directly after the domain name. Now, this wasn't digging into the nuts and bolts of the Internet. This just said we can seize the domain name from the registry. That allows us to replace the link instead of having that domain name pointing to the server for the website, it can point to uh, a web page that we say, listen, this is illegal. So no one can access this using through the domain system. So this applies to anything that is inside the jurisdiction of the United States. Many, many people over the past 30 years have bemoaned the fact that unfortunately, the internet does not fall under the control of any single government. And thus people uh, will use jurisdiction shopping when they wish to do things to avoid the attention of certain governments. Uh, this is something that uh, we think of as a good thing when it's countries that we don't like. And if it's a bad thing, when it's things that we don't like that other countries don't mind as much. The challenge here is you can only seize a domain name from a registry that is inside the United States that is under the jurisdiction of the United States. So this would be .com, but it would not be uh, the large panoply of the rest of the top-level domains that aren't based in the United States. And thus, uh, the United States can't, uh, can't exert control. What we couldn't do was extend this power out to the rest of the world because the United States government doesn't have the authority to seize property that is owned by foreign nationals. We need the cooperation of other countries and other governments. And this, by the way, is how we handle crime, right? 
intellectual property infringement is a problem, but so is uh, bank fraud and, of course, uh, you know, child pornography. And we work with other governments to take these things off the Internet. But rather than uh, move through that route, they said, well, why don't we just prevent access from American customers from you know, gaining this content? Now, how can we prevent access? Well, a couple of different paths. Uh, the most famous and controversial was actually blocking the domain names from the global internet and preventing American internet users from uh, contacting these domains, from having the URLs, www.infringingsite.ie, could not be translated. When you tried to resolve it to figure out where the computer was through the global domain name system, under American law, or under the, this PIPA and SOPA laws, uh, service providers would be barred from having those domains resolved to an IP address. The other means for going after this content was getting it out of search engine results and allowing a private right of action against the financial means of support, which uh, would be advertising networks for things that stream content and for websites that sold things, sold counterfeit goods online, uh, you could go through the payment networks. Now, some of those make sense. So, for example, we have used direct engagement in the payment networks to stop other kinds of illegal activity. Lots of cybercrime. This is how uh, the United States has prevented Americans from engaging in online gambling by working with the, the online payment processors and banks to make sure that money wasn't flowing into accounts that were controlled by companies that did online gambling. So from that perspective, it makes sense. The really controversial aspects were this idea that we would cross a line from attacking businesses to actually altering how the internet was used by Americans. I wouldn't go so far as to say it would break the internet, but it certainly would create a very strong precedent and endanger certain aspects of cybersecurity. And perhaps most importantly, it would seriously undercut America's efforts to both build a more secure internet in an internet governance context, as well as a more open internet globally. The hacking group Anonymous launched denial service attacks at the websites of the Justice Department and other organizations such as the Motion Picture Association and Recording Industry in uh, retaliation for the mega upload arrests and charges, especially the government? Should they have anticipated these attacks? And if so, what could they have done to prevent them? We're still waiting to hear the full details about these attacks. And of course, uh, victims of this type of attack, especially governments, are often loath to, to reveal too much in the way of details because they believe it, it exposes their vulnerabilities, at least until they can fix them. By and large, I think it is safe to say that a large organization, whether it's a portion of the government uh, or a large corporation, should have the capacity to withstand a reasonably sophisticated denial-of-service attack. The solution to a denial-of-service attack is to throw a bandwidth at it. This isn't cheap, but on the other hand, it is also not something you need to do in the long run. It requires a little bit of preparation. It requires having a flexible uh, IT staff and, and a watch officer situation, but this is the sort of thing that you'd expect from the nation's top law enforcement agency. Are you familiar enough with them to know whether they have that kind of staffing? I know that they have uh, very sophisticated IT staff, but of course budgets are very tight. And when you are given a choice between using your resources to secure your network against uh, data exfiltration or engage in forensics to prosecute people, you can understand how someone would say, maybe we don't need to have a new meeting every six months to figure out how much more we can have to, uh, to defend ourselves against denial of service attacks. But I was surprised that it was taken offline, uh, even just for a short time.
I uh, I would have thought that they would have been more prepared. And I think we'll find out more about the anonymous attacks. Traditionally, the anonymous attacks have been well-coordinated, but have not brought to bear the full offensive capacity that only comes from illegal malware-driven machines. It's been more of the participatory software model, and that attack is, is fairly easy to mitigate. So I believe when we learn more about this attack, we'll find out that this, they really did employ more botnets than we've seen from uh, some of the previous attacks. It sounds like it's a risk management issue for the people at the FBI in a sense that, uh, as you pointed out, they're more concerned with the exfiltration of different data, things like that, than they are necessary to now service attack that might take them down for a bit, and then but they're back up again. It's true. And, you know, web things like website defacement or denial of service attack against a specific part of your domain are certainly high profile, but it is by no means the worst thing that can happen to an organization. And in fact, is probably the first thing you'd like to have go down compared to all of the other things that can happen to an organization's information architecture. What kind of damage is Anonymous really doing? And how concerned should those charged with protecting their organization's information assets be against these so-called activists? Anonymous is a, a fascinating model because we haven't even come up with a decent way of describing the phenomena. A collective is probably a better word than group. It is a purely voluntary organization with no membership, limited common identity, and, and no uh, real identities even inside the community of individuals. It's very flexible, and in fact, the decision-making process is fascinating. I have not personally researched it, but there are a number of, of scholars who, who have been working on this issue and just observing just the challenges of how a group makes decisions in this kind of context is something that I think uh, every government and, uh, and social organization could learn a lot from. The challenge here is, you know, what drives action? And clearly, uh, there are certain things that uh, provide a certain amount of emotion. They, they've gone after some of the famous bete noirs of the uh, hacking community, from Scientology to the MPAA. And they sort of generally grow out of the uh, grand hacker ethos of, of openness and rough consensus in running code. What is interesting is for a little while, there were sort of open declarations that we're going to attack this organization. And sometimes it would work and sometimes it wouldn't. Members of them are clearly well-trained in understanding systems and how to, how to infiltrate them. We don't have a very good idea of what percentage of the people who are engaged in these activities and self-identify as members are the ones who are actually doing this. I think the two most prominent activities they're known for are these denial-of-service attacks that started off as host-based attacks uh, where individual members would download this famous application and it would simply run a sin flood from their, the host machines or other types of, of classic DOS attacks. Those attacks are relatively easy to defend against now for large organizations and so they have to go to slightly more sophisticated denial-of-service attacks which are much harder to do without bringing in large-scale botnets and other things that uh, most security researchers think of as highly illegal. The other component which uh, strikes fear into the heart of many organizations is this idea of, of uh, just infiltrating and gaining access to any set of documents. 
the larger the organization, the harder it is to safeguard all of your documents and to safeguard all of your entries. And this is something that InfoSec has worried about quite a bit, certainly in the last two years, especially with respect to economic espionage. And now it's not just you're worried about economic espionage, but you're worried about having your dirty laundry aired, as many companies have found out. Sometimes as a PR move, this can backfire as the attack against uh, Stratfor, which uh, was both claimed and denied by groups that self-identified as anonymous. People who claimed the mantle anonymous during the attack said this is a contractor who represents the forces of evil for government control of the internet, when in fact Stratfor is uh, just a slightly hawkish think tank that uh, deals in information. So the, the, the publication of personal data probably did not do well for the reputation of this kind of attack for people who didn't have an opinion made yet. I'm sure this is not the last we'll hear about Anonymous and, and also the government uh, going out against people who they consider stealing intellectual property. Thanks, Alan. Happy to chat with you. Take care. I've been speaking with Alan Friedman, a fellow in governance studies and research director of the Center for Technology Innovation at Brookings. I'm Eric Chabro of Information Security Media Group. Thanks for listening.